Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guests on the show are John Hawkins and Jim Garrity. John is a biotech industry veteran and the vice chairman of Odgers Bernson, an executive recruiting firm in New York. He's also the author of the new biography on Henry Termeer, the longtime CEO of Genzyme and one of the founding fathers of biotech. Jim Garrity is an industry veteran who serves as chairman of the board for three companies, Idera Pharmaceuticals, Orchard Therapeutics, and Pyrrhus Pharmaceuticals. But before all that, he spent 20 years at Genzyme. There, he had career-shaping experiences working closely with Henry. Garrity lived through many of the up and downs chronicled in Hawkins' new book. After Termeer died suddenly and unexpectedly in 2017, Garrity was among the Genzyme alumni who wanted to see Henry's life preserved for posterity in book form. Garrity was among those who encouraged Hawkins to take up the challenge to write up this extraordinary and complicated life story. The book is titled Conscience and Courage. I've read it. It's a worthwhile read for anyone in biotech and pharmaceuticals. You can order a copy at termirbook.com. Now, before we start the episode, a couple quick things. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. And are you a marquee service provider to the industry, eager to get your name out in front of the biotech leaders who listen to this show? Ask my new business representative, Stephanie Barnes, about sponsorship opportunities. You can check out her bio and contact information on TimmermanReport.com. Just go to the contact section and look her up. Stephanie Barnes. The other thing you can do to invest in quality journalism is to purchase a subscription to Timmerman Report. It's $149 a year for an individual subscriber. Companies and universities with multiple readers can purchase a group sharing license. When you do that, you'll be able to read my writing plus in-depth reports from highly experienced contributors like Stacey Lawrence, Asher Mullard, Alex Harding, Leora Schiff, and more. Go to TimmermanReport.com slash subscribe to get yours today. Now, please join me and John Hawkins and Jim Garrity on the long run. John Hawkins and Jim Garrity, welcome to the long run. Thank you, Luke. It's a delight to be with you today. Jim, um, tell me a little bit about uh, how you came to this project. Sure, Luke. Well, I uh, I started my career in 1981 at uh, as a strategy consultant at Bain & Company uh, here in Boston. And uh, the first client that I was assigned to in the fall of 1981 was uh, what was then called Baxter Travenol. And I was assigned to the plasma products business, the Highland Therapeutics Division, where Henry was the vice president of marketing. And uh, he was just back from Germany, and he was working on the global launch of uh, of the Baxter's new plasma derived factor eight called Autoplex, uh, which went on to become you know one of Baxter's most successful products, and was really in many ways the genesis, I think, of the orphan drug revolution. Um, I talked with Henry about uh, Genzyme at the time. That's recounted in the book, but we'll skip that for the moment. And I went off and did some entrepreneurial things with Bain Capital for a few years. And then in 1992, Henry invited me to join him at Genzyme, and I spent the next 25 years there working with him in uh, spinning out a company, business development, uh, running Genzyme Europe, and ultimately uh, stayed close to him and was involved on a couple of boards with him in the in the seven or so years in the post-Sanofi period. Okay, so you've obviously uh, worked with Henry at close range for a long time uh, through some of those 
um, career-defining experiences, the things that uh, made him a, a worthy subject of a biography. So how did this idea of a Henry Termeer biography get started? Uh, well, I mean, I think in some ways Jim was a great was an important part of the inspiration that I felt to write about Henry. Uh, Jim and I have known each other for, you know, almost since the, I guess, 1992 thereabouts. So our friendship goes back 25 years or more. And uh, we were talking over the course of the last three to four years about about the next chapter in our lives. Uh, Jim had, had taken up a, some very important chairmanships of various biopharmaceutical companies and was, was investing through, through some of his involvements with Third Rock Ventures. And, and I, for my part, was heavily involved in some of the board rec recruiting and board consultancy work that uh, pertained to his interests. So we found a, a mutual ground, and, and then the subject of Henry came up uh, really intensely around the time of his death. I mean, I had met with Henry. I don't know whether I should go into it now or, or later, but I had met with Henry five months prior to his death at, at Henry's invitation at his pied terre on the harbor in Boston. And, uh, and, and Luke, we, uh, we talked, it was a scheduled one-hour meeting, went for, went for two hours, and uh, we just talked about all kinds of things. There was no real agenda. I, he, I'd recently, I'd helped Henry uh, with some of his uh, mentees in terms of uh, board assignments and, and the like, and he wanted to get to know me better, so he reached out and said, let's have coffee. And I mentioned this to Jim, of course, and uh, and then he died in May of uh, the of 17, and uh, we were at the memorial service at MIT together, uh, and then uh, I was musing as to what I might want to consider doing as I reached another stage of my career, and writing a book was one of the things that I had considered, and Jim was uh, was certainly one of the those persons who strongly encouraged me to consider it, and uh, and I'll let him take it from there. <laughs> Do you have no, no desire to write the book yourself? No, I mean, I, well, I had thought about it, Luke, to be honest. Um, and I would say from, you know, the other side of the story there is that, uh, you know, many of us, including Henry, had felt that what Henry would have called the Genzyme story, as opposed to his, you know, biography, was a story that should be told, that had transformed the industry in a very fundamental way, and it opened the door, as John writes about, of hope to, you know, many patients who the pharmaceutical industry had abandoned. And that that was a story worth telling. And, and so with, you know, a few people, Genzyme's head of corporate communications and a few other senior people, and, and Belinda Tamir, of course, uh, you know, we talked with a few people who'd expressed an interest. And um, quite honestly, none of them seemed to have the right feel for the values and the mission. And, what, of course, I'd known John for a long time, and I knew that John understood leadership and understood the importance of values in building, you know, great organizations. And when he mentioned that he was interested in writing a book, I thought he'd be the perfect fit, and I, John's done a phenomenal job, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. I, don't, I never could have done as good a job, Luke, to be honest. So you went, went about uh, encouraging him to take this up as his subject? Strongly. <laughs> uh -huh, uh -huh. I don't. I don't know if either of you guys heard about this in the course of your uh, reporting, but um, I actually had a conversation personally with Henry in the fall of 2016 about this very idea of writing a biography of Henry. Now, of course, he was alive at the time, and it was proposed as a living biography. So that would be part of the deal that he would sit for a whole bunch of interviews, and I would capture all kinds of oral history. Um, I had just written a book about Lee Hood. Um, and, and, uh, he, you know, so he, um, he was interested, uh, in this idea. He wanted to know like, well, why would I want to write a book about Henry? And I said, well, I mean, basically you're a guy who transformed the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, how many people can say that, uh, that you basically pioneered the rare disease business model? Uh, there was no business for treating small groups of patients before, and then um, he showed the way, made it happen, and opened up a, a whole big sector of biotech. That's, um, that's a consequential life. <laughs> and, and so I made that case to him. And uh, it just, for a variety of reasons, it didn't, uh, it didn't come together. And then, you know, when, when the subject um, passes, um, you know, early and surprisingly, um, that changes the whole nature of the project. Um, so... So, so I'm kind of, you know, that's how I see Henry's life um, and why there's a, a genesis of a book. But, John, how did you think about this story and why 
it should be told in book form? Well, I, I you know, I, I come at I come at the question from a human capital perspective, and and Henry Tamir, what I learned about him, Luke, is he was the ultimate human capitalist. He was a master at not only attracting, identifying, attracting, and developing and mentoring extraordinarily capable people, but he had a human side to him that was so special. Uh, and I, you know, this was the side of him that I, I guess I was as much intrigued by as, as the resume. I mean, this is what uh, David Brooks called the eulogy values in his book, The Road to Character, which you've probably read. But I mean, Henry, of course, had 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 had, had resume values that were almost unmatchable. But his, his his eulogy values, which were his humanitarian values and his values, what he valued people and developed people, I found those to be just fascinating. And the combination of the two is so unusual. I mean, it's not unusual to find someone that has deep eulogy values or someone that has deep resume values. But to find someone that has both, as Henry did, um, to me was just so striking. And, and my first glimpse into this was that meeting at his Piata Terre in Boston, that December of 2016, when I was just walking out the door after this lengthy discussion, and he just kind of dropped into in conversation. He was mentoring 46 active CEOs. That was the first glimpse. I didn't know Henry well. I don't, don't want to portray that I did. But that was my first glimpse into what this man was about. Now, let's just stop there. The 46 biotech CEOs actively being mentored. Now, you're in the recruiting business. Um, you interact with a lot of board members and C-level executives. Um, that's unusual, isn't it? It's highly unusual. I mean, I, I, can't, I can't tell you how many meetings I've had with CEOs. The word mentor never even came up in the conversation. And here was a man who was devoting... 40, you know, enough time to, to, to actively develop and mentor and be interested in the lives of 46 people. That struck me as just exceptional. And, and that was just the beginning, Luke. That was simply one of the early s sort of tips that this guy really, he had a different pulse than a lot of, than most every other executive I've ever met. And I can say that with all honesty. It's part of what drove me to write it. It's a big part of what drove me to write it. And, you know, then I went to his eulogy, went to his, uh, his, his, his memorial service at MIT on May 20th, 2017. And the, and, the, and the array of six beautiful eulogies, the le not the least of which was the one delivered by his daughter, Adriana, the last of the six, uh, about uh, his reading The Giving Tree to her, Shel Silverstein's uh, book, which you probably read, but... I have. I've read that to my daughter, actually. <laughs> well, and I, and I, I, I was unfamiliar with it, but, but it just, the way she told the story, it was just so moving. I mean, there were about 600 people in the audience. There wasn't a dry eye in the audience. It was just an amazing, uh, amazing uh, moment. And so I, the more I learned about him and the way he led and the way he cared about patients and the way that he lived his life... It was really a very moving thing to understand his generosity and his interest in people and, and, uh, and, and his humanitarian instincts, which were just extraordinary. Now, um, for anybody to write a book and for it to be any good, <laughs> you've really got to commit. Uh, you kind of need to rearrange your life responsibilities in some ways. Uh, so how, just very briefly, what did you do to like, make this happen? Well, the first, the very first thing I did is I, <laughs> I looked at Jim Garrity about about two weeks after the memorial service, and I said, Jim, should I really do this? Because I was at that point really, you know, trying to just trying to. I was I was in. I, let's say I entered a period of discernment, and 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 Jim was maybe the first of those that I I, I asked for advice and counsel. I went to half a dozen to ten people that knew me and knew Henry. And, and said, does this make any sense? I'm a first-time author. You know, people tell me I write reasonably well. I guess we'll find out if, we do, if I do. But, but the more important point is I was really trying to figure it out. And I took, I took most of that summer of 17 to figure it out. But by the end of the summer, I concluded I'm going to go do this. Um, and so uh, I didn't actually commence interviewing until the October of that year. So about just about two years ago, I commenced the interviewing process. My very first interview was with Robin, Robin Berman Ely, and, and Robin was the mother of Brian Berman, the first patient. 
but and I can talk. We can talk about that as much as you like. But but the, you're, you're you're so right, Luke, about the commitment and the and the intensity of this process because I found myself frequently through it through the process. I was unable to sleep. I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning and and writing until nine thirty or ten o'clock in, in the morning. And, and by 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 noontime, I was exhausted. I mean, it was so I can't tell you. I'm sh- I'm sure you found this with Lee Hood's book, but. It's an extraordinarily intense process. It's immersive. You cannot allow distractions. You need to focus on this thing. Because someone's life, as someone as consequential and nuanced and complex and interesting as Henry Termeer, I mean, it requires your full attention. Well, and this was the other thing as a first-timer that I, that I realized about the process is, the, is frankly, the, you know, the, let's be honest, the burden that you carry uh, because of the importance of your subject and wanting to do it justice and 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 you know you've got to be a hundred percent accurate everything you write about this person and about his life has got to be fact-checked it's got to be right Jim was incredibly helpful in not only helping me in editing the book but also in making sure that what I wrote was factual because there were some insider details that I mean I couldn't in some ways check them and Jim could and and he'd been in the room, perhaps, or new colleagues at, at Genzyme that, that that offered that, that um, authenticity. So it was it was. Uh, but the, I don't want to lose the point. The the burden of, of that you carry in writing a book like this, as you did with Lee Hood, you know exactly what I'm saying. It's it's intense. So you um, did you you knew some about Henry. You had met him. Um, what were some of the surprising things you learned? Um, along the way during the course of your research? There were, some, there were a few aha moments. I guess one of them was after, after about the first 20 interviews, it was sort of interesting to me that, that, that there were certain messages that, 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 seemed to, that seemed to come up again. And there was a repetition that, that began to develop over the course of the, of the, uh, of the interviewing process. And I, as I said, I interviewed 130 people um, I tried to be as thorough as I possibly could. About a half of those people were Genzyme alums and about half were not. And so as I'm careful to tell people, this is not a book about Genzyme. It's a book about Henry. But of course, you can't really write a story about Henry with it to some degree writing about Genzyme. So, um, so I, I, you know, the Genzyme, his life at Genzyme is so in, integral to the story that, uh, that, that having had the opportunity to meet with so many Genzyme alumni was incredibly useful and, 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 and beneficial. But I, you know, I, I think I found Luke, you know, just just the depth of the man's character, the the, the height the height the height of his character, really is how I should put it. I mean, he was a man of enormous character, who 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 carried with him uh, just core principles that pushed him through the good times and the bad. He was very humble, and and one of the things that I liked about him a tremendous amount is, um, and part of the reason I wrote the book, really a big part of the reason is. He was not a not a self promoter. He didn't promote himself. And, and one of the things that I find so endearing about people of his stature is their humility. And Henry was 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 an incredibly humble man. Um, so I was attracted to that. Um, and I and I it part of, it's what propelled me to write the book because this book is written. Yes, it is written for the biotechnology community, but I also wanted it to be written in a, in a manner that was accessible and would be readable and interesting to people that lie outside of biotechnology, even potentially people in the rare disease world, you know, the rare disease patient community, the patient advocacy community, uh, the, the, the caregiver community for that matter. And so part of the purpose here was to really try to compose a story about a business leader who had, who had a heart. Well, I want to come back to this later, the relationship between the pharmaceutical industry and the society at large, which was something Henry thought about a lot. And I, I know that he was, like many uh, people, dismayed at, at how um, that had become tense and frayed as it is now. Um, but let's come back to that. For, for, for those not that familiar, I mean, in a nutshell, Henry, you know, he's 
born in the Netherlands. Uh, he's got an immigrant story. His parents, his dad was um, ran a shoe store, was a, a business person. He trains in economics. He comes to the United States, gets an MBA, uh, finds a, a, a role at um, an emerg- at a company, Baxter, um, which he had the good fortune um, to land at in the in the seventies, which turned out to be a terrific training ground for his international experience and gave him exposure to patients. These were the things that you know I'm, I'm glossing over very quickly, but put him in position to have his greatest impact um, at, in his early life um, before coming to to Genzyme. Um, what what would you say? But you know, as you know from from your travels and your work, I mean there. There's a, there's something about successful people. Um, they all have t- some talents, something innate about them, and a, a ferocious work ethic, a drive to succeed. But there's also <laughs> uh, some circumstance, some luck, some matter of being in the right place at the right time. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that in the case of Henry. Um, what was um, what were the conditions that he encountered that he was able to seize upon? <laughs> well, you 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 you've hit a hit a terrific point. I mean, there's a the third chapter of the book is, is entitled "A Great Convergence," and Luke, I don't know whether you've 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 had time to, to I have. scan through that chapter, but that chapter is the chapter that that is all about right place, right time. Now, now Henry Tamir was an extraordinarily talented guy, so I don't want to don't want to diminish what he was able to recognize and accomplish uh, over the course of his life and career, but. But my gosh, if there's anybody that got on the scene at the right time, it was Henry, because the world just seemed to converge in a way that just played to his strengths, to his experience, to his depth, to his background, to his cultural life experience. So, I mean, you, and you, you've hit a few of them. I mean, really coming to America, working for Baxter, being trained the way that he was, but also having had some of the prior experiences in his in his earlier life. Uh, he was a liberation child. I mean, he, he grew up in a by that I mean he was he was he was born in in 1946. Uh, in fact, uh, nine months and 20 days after VE Day. If you go back and look at the calendar, it's almost uncanny. So here's a guy who grows up in a, in, a, in a country that has been ravaged by the the, the, the invading Nazi forces. Uh, who's had to de- look, understand a little bit about poverty uh, and deprivation. Uh, here's a guy who worked in in Baxter, Germany, where uh, hemophilia, a, a genetic disorder. Was, uh, was 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 a, a disorder that was treated within the Baxter, within the German system, and Baxter was an important advocate and player for patients in that system, but it also was a high-priced medicine. Uh, he, uh, the Baxter products that came on the market uh, that, that treated hemophilia, so he had experience with that. You had the ad, you had the advent of, of on, in the identif- identification of ARC, age-related complex, come onto the scene in 1986. You're the Norton. Uh, you had the Orphan Drug Act approved in 1983, the year he joined Genzyme. Uh, you had all of these externalities. And then you had, of course, you, I should, shouldn't skip over the fact that you had the, the, the most, one of the most robust capital markets periods in history, 1982 to 1987, where you had this avalanche of, of biotech IPOs. Genentech had gone public in, I believe, ni- uh, the fall of 1980. Uh, and uh, 81 was it? And and um, so Henry was at the exactly at the right place at the right time. And and, and, and Genzyme as a company had sort of these kind of cats and dogs kind of portfolio of assets. And and you know he was he was okay with that. I mean he was you know he recognized that it afforded him the opportunity to forge a new strategy and to create an, an enterprise that maybe wasn't like every other biotechnology company. Okay, before we get to Genzyme, let's just talk briefly about Baxter. Um, it seems to me like the important thing, there were a whole, there was a whole cohort of young Turks, you could call them, I guess, um, who got a lot of experience at Baxter and used that to uh, go forth in the burgeoning biotech industry of the early 80s. Henry was one of them. Uh, what was it about that environment that was so nurturing for Henry and, and these Baxter boys? They, they were mostly boys, by the way. But <laughs> um, and, and Monica Higgins was someone I also met with earlier in the, in, the, in the process who, of course, wrote the Baxter boys uh, uh, and the story of, of Bill Graham and, and his mentorship at, at Baxter. But 
So Bill Graham was the key. I mean, Bill Graham was the chief executive officer of Baxter and I think served in that role at the company for in excess of 25 years. And he took a personal interest in Henry, uh, as did Bill Gantz, as did Gabe Schmergel, uh, who also uh, were at one point or another direct supervisors of Henry. Uh, and they were they were they were extraordinarily capable also in identifying this uh, this, this 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 team of of, uh, of of highly motivated competitive young leaders who also but found a way to work together. So there was a real there, there was a great environment there, and 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 it was one that moved people very rapidly. I mean, it wasn't uncommon. I mean, Henry was 29 when he became the Geschäftsführer of, of of Baxter Deutschland GmbH in Munich, Germany. Think of that. 29 years old, just just out of business school for, for four years. Here was a company culture that wasn't afraid to throw a talented young person in the deep end of the pool, and you know he had to figure out. I'm sure how to uh, manage uh, people with a lot more experience than he had. There's no question. I mean, the, I love the story when he, when he, his first day on the job in, in, in Germany, the, you know, the, the company, not as a result of his appointment, but he walked into a, a labor strike. The, 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 the company workers, the workforce went on strike the day he started. <laughs> so, you know, it took him about a month to turn it around, but he did, you know, it was one of those things. Today's sponsor is PPD Biotech. As your drug development program advances, it's critical to select the right CRO partner for your innovative therapy. With a full set of development services and global reach, PPD Biotech offers teams that are dedicated to biotech and small to mid-sized pharma. PPD Biotech knows that every milestone, every project update, every change in direction is important. Committed to close alignment and the right cultural fit, PPD Biotech works as an extension of your team every step of the way to find innovative solutions that get your treatments to the clinic faster. To learn more about PPD Biotech, visit www.ppdbiotech.com. And another alternative to support quality independent journalism in biotech is to subscribe to Timmerman Report. You can get an individual subscription or a company license that comes with sharing rights. Go to TimmermanReport.com and hit the green button that says subscribe. Okay, so he gets this um, really deep and high pressure and uh, experience and he comes out the other side um, with uh, with some some attractive qualities. Like he begins to catch notice of of people in this biotech world. How did he uh, end up getting the job at Genzyme? (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to let Jim handle that. <laughs> One other aspect of the Baxter culture that uh, we didn't touch on too much there was, you know, beyond the kind of uh, investment in people and risk-taking, Baxter had a very unusual business model. You know, it, it wasn't a pharmaceutical company. It had a diversified business model with a lot of very small business units, and it cultivated a culture of entrepreneurialism. So where most of the big pharma companies were, and in many ways still are, highly vertically centrally integrated, where you have you know one general manager at the top, and then the entire senior management team is functional, and everybody who comes up in the company, really mostly all they get is exposure to one function most of their career, Baxter would give these young recent business school graduates a general manager role. It attracted strategic entrepreneurs and leaders, and it would give them a business you know, unit or product line might have one or two or three million dollars in revenues in those years. But it took people who said, hey, I'd rather be the general manager of a three million dollar business of my own than be the, you know, assistant vice president, you know, in some big pharma company. And so that people got to learn in developing those businesses. So when venture capitalists were looking for CEOs who were broadly integrated strategic thinkers, you know, th- not a lot of people from farm had had that training, whereas Baxter, as, as John said, Monica Higgins tells that story in Career Inference, had cultivated that, had, had attracted and then cultivated those qualities. And that's why so many Baxter alumni became CEOs of particularly the most successful of the first generation of biotech companies. And Henry was very aware of that legacy. And from the day he founded Genzyme, he was determined to build a company in that image of Bill Graham, decentralized general management with you know strategic entrepreneurial managers and, and a business that would attract a lot of mavericks who would really take opportunities and run with them. 
That's an important point because the the alternative pathway in pharmaceuticals would have been, uh, like you say, be an assistant VP, work your way up the ladder on some really big franchise, whatever it was at the time, whether it was cholesterol lowering or ACE inhibitors or something, you know, blockbusterology was the thing in, in those days. And that was just not how Baxter was organized. It was just not how Henry was brought up to think. Okay, so he gets the job at Genzyme. So in early 1983, just to pick up on, on Jim there, uh, in early 1983, Henry, you know, I think was at a point in his career. He had been now at Baxter for, for um, I want to say, for, for, for three years and, and, uh, and, 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 and been at Baxter for 10 years and, and was been in this assignment at, 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 um, at out in Highland, um, Highland Therapeutics in Glendale, California. And the number two there working for Dave Castaldi. And, and I think that, you know, the phone was ringing. Look, I mean, Bob Carpenter had left and, and, and Gabe Schmergel had, had, had moved into a, a, an important uh, biotech job at the Genex Institute. And, and the, the, clearly Baxter was not investing as were others in biotechnology uh, at, 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 as clearly some of the other pharmaceutical businesses. So Henry, Henry decided, I think, somewhere in, in the late 82, 83 timeframe that uh, he was going to uh, you know, test the waters. He'd been getting calls and not testing the waters. But I think uh, his first one, apparently, and I, I don't have this on, uh, on, on full, his full authority, but I, uh, Life Technologies actually approached him. to uh, this, was, this was Fred Adler, who was a venture capitalist. I'm sure you know Adler uh, from the old days. And, and Fred Adler approached Henry to become CEO of, uh, of Life Technologies. And, uh, and, and Henry came in second in, the, in, in that particular search assignment. You mean the company that later became known as Life Technologies, what was in, in Vitrogen at the time, like a tools This develop- was the company down in Rockville, Maryland, that was involved in, uh, you know, basically fetal bovine serum and the picks and shovels oh. of the business, right? So they were down in Rockville, and, and, uh, and, and Jim Barrett actually got that job. Uh, as you probably uh, you probably know Jim from NEA, but in any event, um, so so Henry then gets the call. So Adler's having dinner with Ginger Moore. I think it was Ginger Moore uh, in New York uh, some weeks or months afterwards, and uh, uh, and 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 and, uh, and and Fred says to Ginger, "You ought to really check out this guy Henry Tavir. He's really pretty special, and we you know he might be interested in doing something else." So lo and behold, you know, there was never a search conducted. It was simply uh, Ginger picked up the phone. Ginger Moore at the time was a venture capitalist at, I believe, Oak Investment Partners. One of the, well, Exactly right. Oak Investment Partners. One of the board members of Genzyme. And Genzyme had been around for a couple of years. Um, but what, what kind of profile did this present to um, Henry at the time? Well, it was, uh, it, you know, it was something that it caught his attention because, you know, he had, the, the timing was right again, right? He had already sort of crossed the bridge in terms of thinking maybe now is the time in his career to make, to make the kind of change that, uh, that was, he was considering. Um, and so actually one of the great stories in the book is he goes to meet with Gabe Schmergel at the, uh, with the old lying in hospital on Mission Hill in Boston. Uh, and this is this is a this is a massive building in which there's one tenant, and that's Genetics Institute with about 12 employees. <laughs> you know, and that's that's uh, you know Mark Tashney and a few other uh, you know a few other scientific talents at the, at the time. And, uh, and and Henry walks in thinking that Gabe is going to say he made a massive mistake. And of course, Gabe Gabe can tell this story better than I'll ever be able to tell it. But but Gabe Gabe looked at Henry with a smile on his face and said, Henry. I love it. <laughs> so it was the last thing that Henry expected. I mean, because Henry Henry was used, you know, here, here's Gabe would run about, uh, you know, a large a large business for Baxter had been one of the you know member of the executive committee he was a very senior guy there, but uh, but but Henry Henry listened to that listened to Gabe talk about uh, his experience took other soundings along the way during that summer, and then the following October. Uh, he, he met, uh, actually was into September, he, he took a meeting with, uh, with the scientific advisory board at the time. Uh, Charlie Cooney uh, was, was on that board, um, as was uh, George Whitesides, uh, Anthony Sinsky, uh, uh, Harvey Lodish. Uh, uh, there's, there's actually a picture of, of, the, of the SAB in the book. It's uh, back in the picture bank. You'll see it. But, but there's a lot of great scientists there. So there was something, as there often is in life, there's both a push and a pull. The push being, well, you know, maybe he's accomplished what he wanted to at Baxter and he doesn't really see himself becoming the CEO of this older line company. He's a, 
uh, so there's that. But then there's the attraction of this scruffy but full of potential world of biotech. Let, and let Jim Garrity tell you the story that of his advice to Henry in this process, because that is classic. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll tell you that. Before I tell you that, let me just tell you a little bit in response to your question. You know, what, what pulled Henry to Genzyme in the early years? And one, one guy we didn't mention who deserves mention in any history of discussion of Genzyme certainly is Henry Blair, who was the original founder of Genzyme. And it was, you know, he was an enzymologist at uh, Tufts, uh, Medical, the Tufts Medical Center. And uh, he had started when Tufts got a contract to produce the enzyme glucoserebrosidase from the NIH that Roscoe Brady had just identified as the enzyme that was deficient in Gaucher disease. And Henry Blair, you know, had the contract in his lab to produce that. And he was the first one with Roscoe and Roscoe's team down there to see that there was evidence it was working. And then, you know, the NIH terminated the contract because they said this is moving from research into, like, clinical development. And so, you know, you have to raise private capital. And that's when Henry founded Genzyme, uh, Henry Blair, to, to try to continue that. But what Henry Blair also did was he had put together, I think John called them dogs and cats. You know, he, he was a very pragmatic guy. And he put together uh, these businesses in diagnostic enzymes and pharmaceutical intermediates in England you know, Coke Light and other, you know, pharmaceutical chemical businesses that were profitable and cash positive. And one of the things about Henry, who was, you know, one of the boldest, most visionary thinkers, you know, you could ever meet, he was also, you know, he had his conservative side and he was economically and financially very cautious. And what he liked about the Genzyme model was that you were not dependent on the equity capital markets. From day one, you had a you had a floor under the company and you could control your own destiny if you manage these operating businesses properly. And then you had this upside, and this is the story John was alluding to. You know, they had heard about this Gaucher disease that Roscoe was working on, and but nobody believed you could build a company based on it. And that's, you know, when Henry talked to me when he was at Baxter before he left for Genzyme, you know, we he gave me a business model and we looked at it and we you know, I read it independently and I came back and I did the same. I did a calculation that there were about one tenth as many Gaucher patients as there were hemophilia patients. And you had to charge about $25,000 a year for a drug for hemophilia to be, you know, commercially successful to become an important product for Baxter. So I said to him when we, you know, when he showed it to me, I said, Henry, I, I looked at the business plan, but this is never going to work. You'd have to charge $250,000 a year for this drug. And he said, that's exactly what I got. And I said, but nobody is going to pay that much for a drug. This was in 1980, I don't know, five, I guess, at the time. And he said, no, I think they will. And I said, that's crazy. Anyway, we went on about that. But uh, so a week later, he came back and told me, thanks for your advice. I took the job. And um, <laughs> I found that so compelling that a couple of years later, when he invited me to join him, I couldn't resist. Now, John, remind me on the timing of the Orphan Drug Act of 1983, because this seems to be another one of those, <laughs> the clouds are parting and making it possible now for Henry to, to imagine a world in which you could treat a small group of patients and build a business at the same time. Yeah, so there was, uh, so I actually visited with Abby Myers, who you probably have heard of, have met. Yeah. Abby's a trip. She's terrific. And, 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 and she was, you know, the founder of Nord. And, and uh, at the time, in the, in the late 80, this is the 82, 83 time, 83 time frame, um, she was advocating President Reagan to, to pass the Orphan Drug Act. And, and so, uh, lo and behold, I believe it was, it was January 1st, 1984, uh, on, that, on that New Year's Day, uh, Ronald Reagan signs into law the Orphan Drug Act, but but there were several key amendments, and don't test me on which they were. Gosh, I, I I can go back to my notes and find them. But there was one key amendment that was that was agreed to over the course of, of the of, of the ensuing year that was put into place at the end of, of 1984. That was a critical amendment in is it related to uh, as I recall the the threshold to, in determining. Um, the population that would qualify for orphan drug treatment. So if it, and that, 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 that threshold was, became 200,000 patients in the United States. And so that was an important, uh, important uh, development in the, in the act in the way that it read uh, that occurred one year after its initial passage that threw down the gauntlet for investors to begin to want to back uh, in, in, in innovations in this arena that, that historically they had they had they had, they had decided to, to pass upon. So, 
Was the number higher or lower before that? Or were they just vague on that point? Well, I think the point was unstated, if I recall correctly. Okay. Well, under 200,000. I mean, there's a lot of diseases that fall in that category, actually, um, that, that we don't think of as really that rare. Yeah. But uh, that's that's beside the point. But this, this did put incentives in place. So investors, a few visionary executives like a Henry Tremere could look at this and say, if we invest in the R&D in some of these rare diseases, we ought to be able to get a return with the, the things that are in that act, like market exclusivity, et cetera. Correct. Okay. Now, there's, there's a number of junctures in this book where the whole thing could have gone off the rails. And I find that really interesting in hindsight, uh, especially the point where early on when the SAB says, you know what, this is just not, <laughs> not worth pursuing the Saraday's for Gaucher's disease. And Henry defies his own SAB. Um, he's not a scientist. But he says, no, I, like, I'm convinced. I've spoken with this patient. I believe this will work. Let's keep investing. Let's go for it. Yeah, I think one of the key points here, Lucas, his SAB was not saying that based on not believing in the science. His SAB, who were, by definition, scientists, not business executives, they were having the same reaction I was having. You know, They were saying that based on kind of their sense of the industry and the economic model, that it could never work based on the rarity of the population. And, and Henry felt that he knew that you know, well enough himself to be able to, in a sense, overrule them on that point. Yeah, I mean, there, I, I, I don't know whether you, the name Scott Furbish is a name that you remember, Luke, in this story. But uh, but Scott was uh, was a, was a PhD uh, biochemist who was critically involved in in developing the the, 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 the generation of, of glucosidase that resulted in, uh, in in enhancing its activity in in, in patients. And and uh, and Scott Furbish called Henry's decision to countermand his board, quote, the gutsiest decision he'd ever seen. And, 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 uh, and this was a statement he made uh, 25 years later. Uh, you know, the, Henry, Henry took enormous risk. In, in, in fact, it, it almost cost him his job. We hadn't gotten there yet, maybe, in this, in this conversation. But, but Sherry Snyder, who was at the time the chairman and CEO of Genzyme, really, he and Henry had a falling out over this program. I mean, this was, this was a period... Uh, in the development of, of, of Henry's life that was very challenging because Henry, Henry had seen Brian Berman. He had seen this, this four-year-old boy react uh, to, to, to uh, the administration of enzyme replacement therapy. The other seven patients, none of them, none of them were dosed properly, as it turned out. They all ended up, uh, they all ended up responding to therapy in, in the manner that, uh, that, that you'd expect. But the initial experimental trial was not based, the dosing was not based on weight. And so every patient was given the same dose, and the first and seven of the eight were were unresponsive. So, but Henry had seen Brian Berman and the first patient. So Henry, Henry, this is where this is this this goes, speaks right directly to the humanitarian side of Henry Tamir and and the, and the kind of risks that, that he would take and, and encouraged his his team to take. I mean, if 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 a risk benefited the patient, he, he encouraged them to take it. And I had I bet I had three dozen people tell me that. This is also a classic example of, of life as a biotech executive. You're always going to be presented with incomplete or imperfect little shards of information, little signals here and there, and you've got to make a decision. And you've got to make that decision, and, and it's got to be like made with conviction and force and you know, to lead you to that next, next experiment. And maybe the next experiment says, okay, you really ought to pull the plug, or maybe in this case it says you really, your instinct was right and continue it, it was it was very risky as Jim says and and but you know what it, he, he was proven right and but this was this was just the beginning right right Luke I mean then he had he had to overcome the the, the simple fact that there were 22,000 postpartum human placentas required per year per patient that had to be had to be fractionated. Twenty two thousand placentas to get the dose for one drug for one drug for one patient so you're, if, you, if there are 5,000 patients in the world and you're able to, to, to dose 2,000 of the 5,000, even, even the math, I mean, basically it was boiled down to about six, uh, six tons of human placenta were being required to, 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 to treat the primary market for the drug. So uh, this, this, was, this was part of Henry's genius in solving that manufacturing equation. That was also one of the major hesitations that the SAB had. 
And of course, that doesn't even speak to the reimbursement and access and pricing questions that came up in 1991 when the drug was approved. But this, this series of, 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 of obstacles that Henry encountered and overcame is, is it is biotechnology. So let's fast forward. Now, he went through, the, the company went through clinical development. Um, they laid that dosing concern that people had to rest, um, uh, figured out how to manufacture um, enough anyway to get through the FDA in 1991. And then they set the price. And the price was, just as calculated early on, 200 and what? $250,000 per patient per year. How did the world react to this? People were, I mean, I won't give you any of the, well, I won't give you the exact uh, source of some of this because it's very sensitive, but I mean, some people were just appalled. I mean, they were upset. And, and, and Abby Myers, of course, was very happy to give me the full record on, on her, her personal experience in this, in this particular development. But, but there, there are many that look back with, with great pleasure, and irrespective of whatever the, the therapy costs. There were many who were extremely grateful for for what had occurred. There was a there was a, a patient in Los Angeles, a Gaucher patient. Uh, she wrote Henry Tamir a note. I'll read it to you. It's four lines. It's simple. May twenty third, nineteen ninety one. Carol Lees. I quote: Sarah Days' availability is a monumental event for all of us out here with this disease, and one that will surely, after the course of our lives. Almost as much as the dreaded disabling disease itself, having hope is a whole new ballgame. This is what Henry delivered. He delivered hope to not only the Gaucher community, but thousands of communities where there had been no hope. There was no drug before. Now there was a drug, and it gave people their lives back. Um, That's worth a lot in most people's minds. But yet... Um, this is a business, and uh, Henry has to make that hard decision on setting the price, and the price is at 250000 and people are understandably suffering from some sticker shock. Now, how did, he, how did he handle that? I mean, he had to, he didn't go hide under a rock and say, well, the price is the price, and go, you know, leave me alone. I mean, he got out there and forcefully defended it. Absolutely. No, he was very open about it. He believed in, you know, opening Genzyme's books, making them available to the Congressional Budget Office, anybody who wanted to investigate. And, you know, Henry had a very strong sense of, you know, as John says in the book, of responsibility, personal moral responsibility. And he felt that responsibility very powerfully to two, you know, constituencies. One was the individual patient and the other was the society and the healthcare system. And what he would always say when people would ask him about the drug and, and they'd say, you know, it only costs you know, so much to produce, he would say the question isn't just about serides. The question is, do we as a society want to develop therapies? We want scientists and physicians and investors to develop therapies for all of these other orphan drugs. Because if we do, we have to know that that drug development is very expensive. Many of those are going to fail. That's high risk capital. And if we want to attract that investment, there has to be a return that is sufficient to do that. So the price is set not just to cover the cost of Serides. The, the price is set to allow a company like Genzyme or any other company to make the investments in R&D that ultimately led, of course, to Fabrizyme, Myozyme, and you know the whole family of orphan drugs that Genzyme ended up developing. Yeah, he made an argument that was both, it was rooted in empathy to the patients, but it was also, you know, along the lines of what an economist would say. As a trained economist, I mean, this is the way it has to work if we're going to create innovative therapies. So basically, we as a society are going to have to decide, do we want to create these innovative therapies or not? That's exactly what he would always say. And then, of course, you know, the rest is kind of history. Like, Serides hits the market. It's successful. He quickly uh, introduces the, um, the recombinant form, Serazyme. Um, so that um, negates a lot of the problem with manufacturing from the placentas, right? Um, it becomes a, a, better, a better line of business for the future. Um, and all these other products come down the line, Fabrizyme, Myozyme, etc., um, enzyme replacement therapies. Uh, so Genzyme becomes something of, you know, one of the, the big success stories in the 90s for, for all of biotech. Um, how, now, crucially though, this doesn't end uh, exactly the way 
Henry wanted. <laughs> um, and, and you do have an extensive chapter on this, and I appreciate this. This is we're coming to the end where he oversees this viral contamination at the Alston facility where now I don't believe that that was they were making Sarah Zyme there. I think it was they would so so it was Sarah. Okay, so so Sarah Zyme, but also Fabrazyme. Um, so this comes now. By this point, Henry is uh, one of the leading men of biotech. Genzyme has 10,000 employees. It's got this diversified product lineup. It's worth um, billions and billions of dollars. And now he's confronted with a crisis um, uh, of the manufacturing contamination at this facility. Um, this this was a career defining moment. This was an important moment in his life. How what 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 did you learn um, about how he handled that, John? Oh wow. Well, you know this this was uh, this was probably the most deeply researched chapter in the book because, as you say, this this was clearly one of the life defining periods in his life, and 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 it was in the there actually were several streams that 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 ran through this period, which there was not only, and you well cited, the, the, the viral contamination of the plant, but alongside of it, and we'll get to it maybe in a minute, was the, the hostile takeover attempt, Carl Icahn and relational investors. And, and there was also the Sanofi overture. So there were, over the course of a two-year period, which began in June of 2009 and ended in April of 2011, there was a period, the plant was, the, the plant was the, essentially the catalyst that set this in motion. Yeah, though that was the thing that made the company vulnerable to the hostile takeover overture and to the the Sanofi overture, or I mean the activist investor in the form of Ralph Whitworth. No question about it. And 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 Henry, you know, Henry to his to his credit, look, he 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 never he wasn't the kind of guy to shirk responsibility. He took responsibility for it. I mean, he. Recognized that uh, that he you know he they had been confronted. Jim and I spent much many actually a good bit of time and others and Sandra Poole who was in, who was on the scene at the time and David Meeker and others discussing the why there was never a backup site uh, built for for the Austin facility and uh, we we spent a, a great, uh, quite a bit of time discussing it and trying to understand I try spent a lot trying to understand. Why he had missed that? It's not that he missed it. It's just it just never got to the top of the pile. In retrospect, I mean, you're, you're reporting here in this part of the book. I, I respect. It sounds like it came up multiple years in a row on the capital budget. Uh, this question of how much inventory do, should we keep on hand and what kind of backup production facilities are necessary, and. Um, this, I, I think we've seen this movie a few times in biotech, where when a company comes up with a life-saving therapy, uh, there comes a whole lot of responsibility with that. And one of them is to make darn sure that you can manufacture it um, to meet people's needs and demands in a steady way. And this is an instance when Genzyme dropped the ball. And that responsibility ultimately went on Henry's shoulders. And, and, and you know, let's let's face it. I mean, I, I I I did a lot of deep interviewing on this on this topic. Deep. I probably interviewed fifty people about it. Fifty of the one hundred thirty, not exclusively on it, but it was a deep a deep part of the of the of the of the research. And 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 Henry's Henry's health, you know, clearly was under pressure during this period. I mean, sleepless nights. I mean, he, he, he loved his patients. And to think that this had happened on his watch to these people was something that he, he bore. And he took it personally. And I think um, you're quite He right. let them down, and, and it, hurt, it hurt him. No, no question. It did hurt him. It, did hurt, it, hurt him. it didn't hurt him just in terms of his stature and, his, and, 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 and the standing of the company and the pressure that it put on the company. But it hurt him at a personal level. I mean, I think he was really truly, he feels, I think he felt like he let a lot of people down. And he was just that kind of guy. He was a very moral person. This was um, an episode that I remember uh, as a breaking news reporter seeing that press release. I believe it was June of 2009 and saying, holy mackerel, <laughs> 
this uh, this sounds really bad. And the, the statement was, you know, as company statements are, it's kind of soft peddling, like, you know, we'll get this thing fixed in another 30 days or so. But boy, I, I, I had a bad feeling and a lot of people did. And that's kind of when, <laughs> you know, the, the sharks began to circle, as you alluded to there with the, the activist investor, uh, for starters. Um, d- <laughs> How did this... You know, and, and ultimately he had to let go. Um, he he had had to accept that someone else was going to come in and take over this company that was his life's work. Um, all all the people there that he had brought to the table, all the career, people he had mentored, all the good work they had done for those patients, he was um, not really going to leave on his own terms or the way that he imagined. Right. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I think he came to that realization, I think, probably in December of 2010. It was before Davos. It was before the J.P. Morgan meeting. It was uh, it was it was a you know it was a period of it was a bit quieter. The things were a little better in the plant. They were still not hitting their projections in terms of production. The revenue numbers were still slightly below projections. They were improving, but maybe not at the pace that he had hoped. And I, you know, I think, I think he, I think he, you know, I'd look, he'd already had these conversations with, with Wiebacher, Chris Wiebacher, the chief executive officer of Sanofi, who'd made a, made a, a public cash tender offer in November, early November. Um, and I, I think, I think, you know, Henry rejected it, of course, but, but Chris wasn't going to go away. I think Henry could see that. And I think, I think he had all the cards in his hand. He, he, he you know, apparently during this period, he was, he was, he was quite private uh, I mean, he, he did confide in a small number of his very closest associates, but it was a, it was a decision, I think, that he, he had come to – he had all the cards. He was maybe the only executive in the company who did. And I think he came to a conclusion, I believe, sometime in that late fourth quarter uh, that ultimately resulted in the Davos meeting on January the – what was it, the 24th or 5th uh, of, Jan- of 2011 and the ultimate announcement on February 16th of 2011. Chris Wiebacher being this uh, ambitious, younger um, executive at Santa Fe, a big old line pharmaceutical company, vaccine businesses, et cetera, but not a big biotech um, set of capabilities. So he saw this as uh, uh, both the way into biotech and um, a whole lot of great people in that uh, mega cluster of Kendall Square. I mean, there was I mean, it was obviously a very attractive prize. It, it, exactly right. It was it was the location. The Boston location was very attractive. And it, and if I, it, one thing we didn't talk about, it was accretive to earnings. And I think that was the other criterion that they had established in the acquisitions, uh, tar, you know, screening that they'd done. So Genzyme hit all of the all of the uh, criteria. And uh, uh, and Chris, Chris, you know, by the time the cash offer was 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 announced, he was all in. He was he and. You know, look, Peter Worth, who I interviewed, uh, you know, one of Henry's closest associates at the company, made a very strong and very fine comment about about Chris, and and it's in the book. I mean, he said that Chris Chris was tough, but fair. Basically, was the was the way that the way that Peter described it, and and there's a little bit of a play out there in terms of the thinking that Henry went through to get to the to get to the the conclusion that he drew, which was basically he couldn't he couldn't take the risk of not accepting the Sanofi offer because were he not to, not to accept it and there were no other offers at a comparably high price, it's quite conceivable that Sanofi could have come in at a later point in time and had bought the company at a discount. And so I think Henry was at a place where he had concluded he'd run out the string. His bankers had had tested the waters with other prospective buyers, and I think he concluded that Chris was an honorable man that, that would run the business effectively, um, and that, that he was comfortable and, and 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 would work with with Chris to bring the two companies together. And David Meeker, of course, the designated successor to Henry, would carry the torch forward as the next chief executive of Sanofi, which 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 he did in in the, in the second quarter of 2011 after the companies were combined. If Henry had tried to hold on longer and stubbornly turn this thing around, uh, there was that risk that um, the whole thing could really come undone. The stock price could dip even more. Shareholders would be hurt more. More jobs would be lost. 
that that all factored in weighing on him. And so he he looked at this and said, this, this is um, this is the deal to take. The other thing is Henry Henry turned 65 on February 28th, 2011. And I think, you know, he hadn't decided to retire, but I think he, he, he was already beginning to think about taking a step back. Nobody has defined what that really means, but I think that was another factor at play here. Well, he had other interests. Um, you know, he was mentoring these people who had, you know, were Genzyme alumni and running all kinds of companies. And surely that was interesting on a human level and intellectual as well. Um, you know, he's got a family, a daughter you, you alluded to. Um, you want to spend time um, with them too. Um, but, but he actually went through a dark period here. Um, you talk about this in the book. Um, what, what was that like for him the, in the immediate aftermath of letting go of this thing? that he had spent his life on. It was hard. I mean, I think it wasn't, it wasn't lengthy. The good news is I think he snapped out of it within six to eight weeks of having really entered it. I think, you know, it was clear. It was clear. Uh, so so the, the scene at the Algonquin Club here in Boston, uh, where, where the, the, essentially the goodbye party was held, I think there were 52 Genzyme alumni and, and, and mem- friends of the company in attendance, and it was sort of the good, goodbye party. And that, you know, he, uh, that was the night that he drove back to, to Marblehead with Belinda in the car and, and uh, you know, she saw a side of him that she'd never seen before. And so through her eyes, she was able to share uh, some of the, some of the poignant remembrances of, of that, of that era, which were, which were, which were characterized by, by, by melancholy and sadness and, and a, a, a sense of loss. But I, I do think that Henry, if he's nothing else, He's demonstrated that he's a very resilient man, and and I think this was a period during which he demonstrated that he was he was supported, and this is in no small part, uh, frankly, um, uh, attributable to the depth of the friendships of his of his team members, uh, who who supported him through thick and through thin, and they all stepped forward. I mean, the the um, the Genzyme organization that he built was really just a juggernaut. It was just an incredible group of people. Who were, who were culturally aligned to the mission, and Henry was their leader, and 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 you know they were going to stick by this guy no matter what. Yeah, and it it provided a natural network for him to plug into and get involved where he could be useful as a you know experienced uh, senior man of of biotech. He could go serve on boards. He could make angel investments. Uh, he could mentor people uh, formally or informally. Uh, I, I definitely remember seeing him in these years and, and seeing that like the spring and the step was back um, as opposed to like those very weighty years that the final end of that Genzyme when clearly that that took a toll. Um, OK, so I want to come back to this question that you alluded to about price and the relation to society, which was so important to Henry. Um we um, uh, have a big uh, debate now uh, in our world about what drugs should be priced at. And there have been, um, so there's a good side to blazing this trail. Uh, the opening up of the rare disease business model has created a whole host of new therapies, which I get the pleasure of writing about and talking about uh, all the time. Um, but... Um, they're, they're coming at a price that's, in many cases, a lot higher even than 250000 where Henry started this thing. Um, I, did you get a sense in, uh, like in, in, toward the end of how Henry felt about, like, did, he, did he feel like maybe he had opened Pandora's box in a way that like, people were, were pushing it too far and, and being greedy like the way the, the public perceives the industry? I, I wouldn't say that, Luke. I mean, I think from day one, there were always people who tried to kind of defraud the system, you know, the Martin Shkrellis. There were always people who would behave unethically and, and try to cheat and game the system. But the majority of biotech companies developing orphan drugs don't do that. They try to be, you know, very responsible and they try to develop important drugs. And and I think what, you know, again, you said Henry was an economist, and I think the way he would look at this, I don't think he did feel it was a Pandora's box at all. Uh, to the to the to the contrary, you know, you, you talked about how he changed the pharmaceutical industry, you know, which is true. I, I like to think about how he changed the world, 
and patients and families around the world who have hope and, and to societies that support them that are all moved, tremendously moved by the stories of these often children, you know, young people having been restored to health and a healthy life. And what, what he would always talk about that people lose sight of is <clears throat> if you take a long view, you know, there were many pharmaceutical blockbusters that got to revenues of seven, eight, ten, twelve billion dollars, right? And they would go off patent. And if you look at what happens, they're still going off patent every year, and the healthcare system is getting back because prices obviously drop 90% plus when those drugs go off patent. And so that amount of seven, ten, twelve billion dollars from those individual drugs is saved. And you know the new orphan drugs that are coming on the market, they don't cost that much collectively. So the reason the cost of drugs or the drug costs as a percentage of healthcare costs has not risen during this whole era of orphan drug innovation is because the number of patients is so small that even at these prices, the, the, the health economic value is enormous, but the cost to the system is less than the cost of what it is recovering at the tail of that innovation from other products. Now, I would say one game that is sometimes played that I think Henry felt you know should not be played is trying to block biosimilar products. Henry was an early advocate of the of a regulatory framework for biosimilar products, and he felt in that same model that innovators needed to benefit enough to attract innovation and investment to new therapies, but then at some point, you know, those prices needed to come down and and that revenue would only be sustained if there were innovative new products to replace them. It was a really balanced and nuanced perspective that he gained and that he shared with people. And, you know, honestly, just listening to you put it right there. I mean, it's, it, it makes me happy to hear that there are people out there who, um, who are carrying on in, in that legacy. Um, the, the, that are providing hope to patients who did not or would not have had it otherwise, um, and um, are, um, are, are willing to bring these to the market in a, in a responsible way and not try to abuse the system. Um, thank you guys for spending this time talking about one of the most important people in the history of biotech. Thanks for being on The Long Run. Thanks, Luke. Thanks thank, so much. Thank you, Luke. Great, good discussion. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timmerman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the sound editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. See you next episode.